This is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Michael. Last Sunday morning, we talked about wisdom. We talked about worldly wisdom, godly wisdom. We talked about the, the source and the motivation and the results of both. And then right at the end of the passage that we were studying last week, you remember, James, the author, says that God's wisdom is pure and peaceable, gentle and open to reason, and a harvest of righteousness is sown by peace, it's sown in peace by those who make peace. So he ends chapter 3 talking about peace and sowing peace. And when we sow peace, it brings about a harvest of righteousness. Well, then he turns the page, so to speak, and enters chapter 4. And in sharp contrast, the next 12 verses are a warning to those who make war instead of peace. He warns everyone who would who would set out to fracture biblical community uh, through their selfish ambition. James jumps right into the middle of this rather challenging situation in the church and with some hard-hitting advice about interpersonal conflict. And first of all, he examines the causes of conflict right out of verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So, so the first cause of interpersonal conflict in our lives is, is what James calls, at least in this passage, he calls it your passions, your evil, sinful desires. So here he's using that term to describe the, the self-centered desires that that cause people to make war with one another instead of peace at home, at school, at work, and even in the church. Don't forget that James is writing this letter to Christians. He's writing this letter to Christians who are quarreling and fighting with one another. Heaven forbid. Outside of our realm of experience, right? Let's not forget that he's writing this epistle to Christians and says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Sin. That's what causes fights and quarrels. Sinful passions, sinful desires, things that have got skewed somewhere along the way. And if these desires are left unchecked, these passions are left unchecked or unrestrained, what happens? Verse 2, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, certainly most of us here, as far as I know, have never committed murder. But we might just allow ourselves to calculate ways to assassinate somebody else's character. Am I right? We might, we might think about getting even. We might even dream about what we might do if we knew we weren't going to get caught. <laughs> boy, oh boy, what I wouldn't do to him. So if, 
if sin and selfishness are not are left unchecked, we, we certainly covet or crave what we cannot have or should not have. And then James surprisingly says, you, you don't have because you don't ask God. Now that's not just an isolated verse on prayer that we pick out of James 4. Context is really important here. It's important everywhere. Every time you read scripture, context is important, but it's really important here. Because in this context, these people are just, they're, they're so busy scheming and conniving and arguing to stop and pray about anything. He, he's suggesting that if they just stopped and prayed about this, the conflict would be addressed. Press the pause button when you're fighting and pray together. Husbands, wives, parents, kids, church folks, hit the pause button. Pause and pray. You don't have peace because you don't ask for peace. You'd rather slug it out than surrender. You'd rather fight at home to prove your right than pause and pray together as a family. But even when these believers took the time to pray, it wasn't effective. Look at verse, four, uh, verse 3, James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So even, though, even when they did get around to, to praying, they weren't praying aright. They were praying so selfishly. They were praying about their own stuff because you ask wrongly. You don't receive because you, you, want, a, you want an answer. You want God to work in a way that, that satisfies your passions, your pleasure. You want to do what you want to do. That's why that song we just sang is so powerful. Lord, we want you to do what only you can do. One commentator says about this verse 3, he says, they, they wanted only to satisfy their own cravings and pamper their own passions. God's glory, God's service, consideration for other people. None of these things entered into their thinking. So such prayers are an insult to God. And they truly are. So the first cause of conflict, sinful passions, evil desires. Second cause, friendship with the world. He goes on to say in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Yikes. This is like, boom, like a two by four right between the eyes, Billy. This is like right in your face. He doesn't hold back. Be careful here. Might hurt somebody's feelings. No, no. He just, he just all, all in, you know. You adulterous people. In the New Testament, the word world, generally the word cosmos in the Greek New Testament, means the world apart from God. Doesn't mean the planet. Doesn't mean the physical world in which we live. It's talking about the, the system of belief, the philosophy behind the way that the world lives without God. Does that make sense? That's the world. Self-centered, Satan-controlled environment in which we live. And believers like us will run into major, major problems when we attempt to satisfy our own inner desires and needs with the world, with what the world has to offer. You say, well, the world doesn't worship 
like we worship. Yes, they do. When was the last time you were at a hockey game? The world worships. When was the last time you were at a football game? At the big house. Michigan. They worship there. They're not worshiping God. They're not worshiping Jesus, but they're definitely worshiping. They're laying down at the altar of their own ambitions and their own glory and their own destiny. The worldly person is the self-centered person. The worldly person is the person who puts self at the center. And whenever you do that, you, you are in danger of adopting the world's values and the world's systems. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Friendship with the world can lead to spiritual adultery. That's why he addresses them as adulterous people. He's saying, if you're going to be a friend with the world, you're really an adulterer. When you get into bed with the world and adopt their value system and, and the way they behave and the way they believe and the way they speak, you might as well commit spiritual adultery. Furthermore, friendship with the world often creates rebellion in our hearts. James says, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. It's enmity toward God. We start turning hostile toward God. Why doesn't God do this? What's up with God? Friendship with the world does that to you. It, it, it shifts your heart. It, it adjusts things, right? It, it, it really affects you. So, so deliberately making the choice to live according to the world's standards and the world's values is, is in fact an act of open rebellion. In addition to that, friendship with the world can also create enemies of God. So like this is a degenerating situation here. Act of rebellion, but then the next step is you, you become an enemy of God. According to James 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's not a happy place to be. Hey, guess what, everybody? I'm an enemy of God. Who wants to be there? Who, who, who wants to live like that? Not me. Not you. You know, if any athlete uh, in the history of the world was known for focus, it's probably Michael Jordan. Extremely focused athlete, basketball star. Um, there's a fascinating story about something that Jordan did on a night was he, he was going out with some friends. Apparently they were at his friend's home, Fred Whitfield, and he asked if he could borrow a jacket. So Fred said, yeah, check. There's, go to my closet, take what you want. Uh, when he went to Whitaker's closet that evening, he discovered that Whitaker had a bunch of Nike products, Nike outfits, and Puma. And the Nike outfits had been given to Whitfield because he was a close friend of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, everyone knows Michael Jordan has an extraordinarily lucrative contract with Nike. He's a Nike man. And someone else, some other athlete, professional athlete who knew Whitaker, gave Whitaker the, all the Puma stuff. And as the story goes, uh, Michael Jordan collected all the Puma stuff, brought it out into the living room, went to the kitchen, got a butcher knife, and shredded all of the Puma stuff, picked up all the scraps, took the scraps to the garbage, to the disposal, and came back in and said to Whitaker, don't ever let me see you wear anything but Nike. You cannot ride the fence. You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time. 
you cannot ride the fence. Now let's look at the cure for conflict. Having diagnosed the cause of the problem, James now turns our attention to God's solution. Verse 5. Do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us? See, God has created each one of us with a spirit, body, soul, and spirit. Every one of us has that ability, that, that place to connect with God. God Himself yearns jealously over the spirit He's made to live in us. And God deeply desires that each one of us worship Him in spirit and truth. John chapter 4. He yearns for that. He longs to see people worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so the first part of the cure for conflict, I think, rests in our willingness to surrender our hearts and our lives to God and worship Him and Him alone. To, 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 you see, He's given us a spirit that has the capacity to, to commune with God's Spirit. Spirit to Spirit, we can have a personal relationship with the living God. And He's jealously guarding that possibility that we might be able to commune with Him and have a relationship with the mighty God. The second part of God's cure for conflict is found in verse 6, where James says, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Second part of God's cure has to do with pride. Just about every conflict on the planet, including the ones at your house or your school, many of them have to do with pride. We're so given to pride, all of us. It's part of our, our sinful human nature to be proud. Proud of what we have, proud of what we are, proud of who, what we've done. We're given to pride. But God is willing to give more grace, the Scripture says. He's willing to give more grace, abundant grace. How much grace do you need? He'll give you more grace if you will but humble yourselves and repent of your pride. Sound like a good deal? So we're going to turn our attention quickly to some practical advice. I want to get here quickly. James closes with some seasoned, uh, time-tested practical advice. And verses 7 and 8 are such key verses here. Just full of wisdom. James 4, 7 and 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So how should we deal with the interpersonal conflict in our lives? Not that you have any, of course, but if you did have it, how would you deal with it? Between husband and wife, parents and kids, brothers and sisters in Christ, remember, he's writing this letter to Christians. First of all, submit to God. Great place to start. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. We have to surrender our lives to Him. We will not experience true peace and live in the fulfillment of God's glory and God's will in our lives or in our homes or in our places of employment or our church without surrendering to God. That's, that's got to be the first step. Secondly, resist the devil. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand up to the enemy. Resist him. Fight back with the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6. He's given, you, he's given us that armor to do battle with. So let's resist the enemy with all that we've got. But you can't do that until you submit yourselves to God. You have to surrender first. Submit first. Resist then. Erwin McManus, pastor in Southern California, tells a story. Uh, I've heard him tell the story live, but he also writes it, I think, in one of his books about his, his little boy, Aaron, who went to camp for the very first time. He's just a little guy, Aaron says. And I was kind of glad because it was a church camp. I figured he wasn't going to hear all those ghost stories because ghost stories, man, they give kids nightmares for months afterwards. But unfortunately, he says, since it was a Christian camp and they didn't tell ghost stories because we don't believe in ghosts, they told demon and Satan stories instead. <laughs> so the poor little guy came home absolutely terrified. Daddy, daddy, don't turn out the light, he said at nighttime before going to bed. No, daddy, daddy, would you stay right here? Daddy, daddy, they told me all these stories about demons. I'm, I'm afraid. He goes, Daddy, Daddy, would you pray that I would be safe? McManus pauses in the story and says, I, I could feel it. I could, I could just feel it. That warm, blanketed Christianity that values safety above everything else. Safety, safety, safety. I could feel it closing in around him. That's all he wanted was to be safe. He said, Aaron, I will not pray that you will be safe. I will pray that you'll be dangerous. So dangerous that every time you walk into a room, the demons will flee. Wow. I thought to myself again this week, I'd rather be dangerous than safe. Wouldn't you? So resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Third set of practical words. Draw near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. So just stay close. Nurture your love relationship with Jesus. And we did that this morning. team did a beautiful job leading us and expressing our love for Jesus and to Jesus. Thank you so much. Number four, renounce sinful actions and reject sinful attitudes. Again, James just you know, hits you hard. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded don't be offended by the truth. This is the truth. You and I are sinners. We need to purify our hearts. Amen? We, we need, we're double-minded. We're, we're not single-minded. Not 24-7. Maybe for a little bit, a little few hours each day, or maybe at least you know, an hour or two on a Sunday. But this describes us. And many of the interpersonal conflicts that I have, I experience because of my sinful actions or sinful attitudes. I just need to renounce those things and get as far away from them as I can if I want to live in peace. And then react to sin with sorrow. James 4.9 Be wretched and mourn and, and weep. These are not words of that you want to write to words of encouragement to somebody who's, you know, going through a tough time. Hey, be wretched and mourn and weep. But he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The fact that his readers were laughing 
And joyful shows how carelessly and how casually they were reacting to their own sin. They were laughing about it. They weren't doing anything about it. They were, ah, you know, God's going to give us more grace eventually, so party hard. Let's go. But James tells us we need to grieve and mourn and, and wail over this kind of conflict because it's never the will of God for believers to engage in this kind of behavior. So we ought to, we ought to weep over it. We ought to repent and be mournful that this is happening in the church and that this is happening in homes. And this is happening between brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to wail and mourn and weep over it. And I'd be the first one to say that I don't do that as often as I should. The Bible earnestly appeals for godly sorrow whenever there's strife in the family of God. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, oh, man, I am glad that's happening over there and not here. I'm glad that church fight is happening in that church and not our church. That's just messed up. That's messed up thinking. The fact that it's in the family of God ought to drive me to my knees every time. Even if it's happening in churches that don't have the right theology or the right practice or the pastor preaches for an hour and a half. You know? I need to pray for them in more ways than one. But I need to pray for them that, that, that they wouldn't experience that kind of conflict. And hopefully they would pray for us. Because it's always just around the corner, you know. You know that, right? Conflict is waiting. This kind of stuff is just waiting to grab us. I don't like special announcements. When they said there's a special announcement this morning, I looked at Phil and went, what? I don't know anything about this. Last time there was a special announcement, well... It was a disaster. You remember? Yeah. No, no, no. We, 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 so, so give us a little heads up next time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Well, oh, what a great morning. What a great morning. And then he says, respond humbly to success. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord and, and, and He will exalt you. Chan Daly is a football coach. He's a football coach of a national championship team. And they were just getting ready for another big game. And they were heading out to the practice field when Chan Daly's secretary called after him. There was a telephone call for him. Irritated, he said, just take a message. We're, we're out to practice. She said, but it's Sports Illustrated. Oh, he said, I'll be, uh, tell him I'll be right there. So he made his way back across the field. As soon as he turned around and started going, he thought to himself, that, you know, this publicity would be really, really good for the school. It's a small school. Maybe they'd get more students. Got a little bit closer. He realized that, you know, probably a three to ten page article in Sports Illustrated is not long enough to tell the whole story about this great team and, and his wonderful coaching ability. And coming even closer to his office, he started thinking that, you know, they might put him on the front cover. His head was spinning with all these kind of possibilities. You know when you get a phone call like that? So he picked up the phone and said, Hello. person said, Is this Chan Daly? Oh, yes it is, he said confidently. 
uh, yeah, this is Sports Illustrated, and we're calling you to let you know that your subscription is running out. Are you interested in renewing? <laughs> yeah. Coach... <laughs> Coach Daly concludes the story by saying, you either humble yourself or you will be humbled. Ain't it the truth? Humility goes a really long way in dealing with conflict anywhere, especially at home and especially in the church. Humility goes a long way. I can mask my pride in public sometimes. And at church, sometimes, but never at home. My wife sees through it every time. Number seven. Wow. Refuse to slander fellow believers. James 4, 11 and 12 contain, contain some of the strongest admonition in this whole passage. These are convicting words for me and maybe for you. James 4.11 Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law of God. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And that's messed up because there's only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You've got this thing all messed up, he's saying. Don't judge each other. You have no idea the extent to which this goes. You're judging the law. You're judging Jesus. You're judging God the Father when you judge one another. Basically, that's what he's saying. That's a powerful admonition. Peace cannot coexist with slander. Where slander is allowed to roam freely, peace will not take root. Never has, never will. It doesn't have a chance. Oh, if only we could eliminate slander and gossip and criticism and ill-speaking of other people. Wouldn't that be a great place to live? If we could find that spot, if we could create that spot where there's no slander, no criticism, no judgment... Be a wonderful place. Be a wonderful church. But it kind of sounds like heaven and not earth. Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue can be used to give words of life or words of death. So let's choose life. Let's choose life. It's just a simple choice. I get, honey, just that fast. You can, you can change. I believe the key that unlocks this entire passage is James 4.7. Submit yourselves to God. That, that's the key. That's the, how else are we going to live in peace? How else am I going to treat my brothers and sisters properly? I have to submit. I have to surrender myself to God. Will you do that? Have you done that? Surrendered fully to God? Submit yourselves to God? Without reservation. See, there's, there's, there's no conditions attached to that. He just says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Well, in what area? Every area. Just submit, period. My family? Yes. My finances? Yes. My personal relationships? Yes. 
The dog across the back fence who won't stop yapping until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning? Yes. Just submit to God. That's it. Bottom line. Period. Have you done that? Would you be willing to do it today? Like right now? Me too. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, today, like every day, somebody or something is going to seize the passion and preoccupation of our hearts, or, or at least try to. Some entity will try to be the boss uh, or the, the fascination of our imagination. It could be bitterness or, or pettiness or cowardice. It could be shame from the past or fear in the present. It could be anger or envy. It could be pornography. It could be overbearing people or aggravating co-workers. But there's any number of things that will clamor for the best part of my life every day. But right now, Lord Jesus, in, in submission to Your Scripture, we, we choose Your peace as the ruler of our hearts, as the centering and focusing power for this moment and for this day. No one is better at giving peace than You, Lord Jesus. For You are the Prince of Peace. On the cross, You secured God's peace with us and God's peace for us. The, the enmity and hostility between us uh, have been obliterated and eradicated by the grace of God. And now there's no condemnation and there's a full and permanent acceptance of God by God of us. Oh, how can we not overflow with, with gratitude on a day like today? Lord, we submit ourselves to You. We surrender our lives to You again, Lord Jesus. May Your peace override the fears and stress, disappointments and irritants which will surely rise and, and vie for our energy again, even today. No matter what, what news we receive today, whether it's personal news or through the news media, Lord, may Your peace be more obvious than our anxieties and our uncertainties and our insecurities. May Your peace especially especially rule in our relationships. Oh, that's where we need Your peace today, in our relationships, Lord Jesus. Because You have forgiven us, we choose to forgive others. Because You have forgiven us, we will choose to ask forgiveness from others. Because You are at peace with us, we will do everything within our power to live at peace with others. And this we pray in the strongest and most holy name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and Amen.